He who drinks it but once and doesn't drink it again doesn't know what true drinking is. Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. Carl A.P. Ruck is a professor of classical studies at Boston University. He is the author of several books and many articles on the use of psychoactive mushrooms during religious rites, including Persephone's Quest and Theogens and the Origins of Religion. He counts among his co-authors Gordon Wasson, who introduced what are now called magic mushrooms into popular culture, and Albert Hoffman, the Swiss chemist who discovered LSD and its connection to a fungus called ergot. Carl, welcome to The Filter. Thank you, Matt. That's great to have you here. I want to start by explaining what makes this interview particularly important to me. I named this the filter because I view our consciousness as a filter on reality. And we can't possibly understand our world unless we understand the lens through which we view it. In my experience, nothing does a better job of highlighting that filter than consuming psychoactive mushrooms, in large part because taking them can temporarily disable the part of our filter which needs to label everything. So instead of looking around and seeing car, dog, scary spider, we see shapes and colors themselves before our learned classification system kicks in. During these altered states, we are able to see how our filter is warping our perceptions, including our perception, perhaps, of ourselves. Based on what I know of your work, Carl, no other living human has deeper understanding of the ceremonial use of fungi to transcend our everyday perceptions of the world. So I want to begin right away with what might be a big question. Most of the time, our regular filters work just fine in identifying that car and dog and scary spider. But there seems to be something in us that craves what, to me, is a more raw interaction with reality. I'm wondering if you agree with my analogy of the filter, and what is it about us as humans that craves these altered states? Yes, I would agree with you. I I use the example of an optical illusion where you have an image that could be interpreted two different ways. If you show it to someone and you say a man, and because you said a man, they see a man. If you say a boat, instead of seeing the, the man, they see the boat. And that's an example of how we interpret the nebulous flux of perceptions that come to us. We filter out what doesn't have meaning and organize what we think has meaning in forms that we understand from previous experience. We know that what we perceive ordinarily is not necessarily real. A good example is the use of a microscope. When you look through a microscope, you see that your skin is crawling with creatures which are really there. You don't doubt that they're there. It's just that they're not ordinarily accessible to you. And to think that the the five ordinary organs of perception are the only ones that we have access to, or that they have to function without uh, without mechanical amplification or aid of, of some kind, is to limit what our experience of reality is. And so anything that's going to change the organs of perception 
reduce the filter so that things that you haven't ordinarily put into a configuration you understand is going to exist, but you can't think that it's a hallucination. It exists equally real as what you ordinarily call a reality. William James, a century ago, in the varieties of religious experience, said that this reality, what we call normal reality, is separated from other realities by the filmiest of barriers. And there's no way of determining that those other realities are less real than what we call ordinary reality. You mentioned the five senses. I think that's one of the things that frustrates me a lot is that once we set up this framework for which you have kind of accepted means of perceiving the world, then the others are shut out. We have, for example, the ability in limited ways to do echolocation, and that's something that we can improve. Blind people do this all the time. We have a sense of balance that people don't talk about that's not necessarily included in the five. And and others as well. And all of these constructs that tell you what information you're allowed to get from reality, they also seem to limit the way we think about those inputs, no? Exactly. Everyone has the experience, if someone is staring at the back of your head, you become uneasy and churn, and yet you know quite well that you have no eyes on the back of your head. I mean, it's a common phenomenon. How is it that you've experienced this? And so you must have other means of perception that you are totally unaware of. When you say, I know what you're thinking, sometimes it's just a boast, but sometimes you really do know what someone else is thinking, and you have no way of knowing how it is that you've, you, you've come to that conclusion. I think that maybe part of the answer of why we're drawn to these altered states is that it lets us tap into something that we're not able to under regular circumstances. Yes, I would say it allows you to cross the interdimensional barrier you don't go anyplace else. You stay exactly where you are, but you're aware that the way you put together the total environment in the room where you are is not necessarily the only way it can be put together. Some people think that they see ghosts and things of that kind. It may be that you see something, but again, whenever you do try to put an understanding to what it is that you're experiencing, you give it a form. That doesn't mean to say that there are ghosts. It means that you saw something. And ghost was one of the words, one of the paradigms that allowed you to give meaning to it. Along with that, in terms of what you're talking about, things that are hidden from view or that some people claim to see and others don't, there also seems to be something in us as humans that we we crave hidden knowledge. There's something very compelling to us about information that is forbidden or hidden. You've done a lot of work on what is called the mystery, which was something that endured for a very long time and has left perhaps only small indications of what it really was. Could you talk a little bit about that draw towards the the hidden and in particular how it relates to our, our perhaps our quest to find out what the mystery is? Mystery begins with yourself. You really don't know who you are. You've been given a name, and that's one configuration. You've been given a role in society, that's another configuration. But you always have the doubt that there's something more to yourself. So I think that the whole mystery quest is really a journey towards the interior of yourself to find out who really you are. The ultimate benefit of initiation into a mystery is that you come to have a new identity, but you realize that the new identity is related to the former one. 
everything that we conceive of, every epithet that we apply to ourselves, means that the opposite of that epithet is not who you are. But in doing this definition of yourself, you're actually describing a perfect paradigm of who you are not. And who you are not is how you describe who you are. So the two of you belong together. And the ultimate benefit of the mystery initiation is that you come to confront that other. Like matter and antimatter, if they come together, it could be destruction and destructive annihilation. But instead of the ultimate battle against yourself, which is a foolish battle because no one can win, you come you come to an accord with your antithetical self and return back to your former identity with the power to function better as a total being, not just a half a person. Sounds like a process of antithesis, synthesis, combining. Yes. And this is something that we, I think perhaps we both crave and fear, no? Yes. In terms of ancient ceremonies, there was a strong tradition of myth, which is a, of course, not a reality. It's a fantasized, historical, evolving tradition. It was felt to be that it was in some way true. And with the experience of an initiation, altered consciousness, you cross the interdimensional barrier and realize that you can enter into the realm of myth an experience which you thought was only only a mythologized historical tradition. What does that mean? It means you can play the role of the hero, that you can confront the images of deity face to face. But as I said, ultimately, the journey is to the center of your own identity, to your opposite self. So when you confront the deity face to face, what you really understand is that you're the other half of deity. The two of you belong together. You've written a lot about the Eleusinian mystery, uh, which I think you say extended a full 2,000 years, which is kind of amazing. And the way you describe it, it seems almost like it's a combination of immersive theater and psychedelic use, all, all rolled into one, no? Yes. Because many people, especially my, my professional colleagues in classics, do not take kindly to, to the work I've done on ancient mysteries. They think that the people of classical times, the ancient Greeks and the Romans, that they would not have altered their consciousness. They would not have seen something religious in the experience of intoxication or, or altered consciousness. And I become completely exasperated because I did not invent the god Dionysus. Uh, he's a Greek god and he's a god of intoxication. And then I've gone into the historical evidence indicating that although he's associated with wine, he actually is associated with all of the intoxicants. Wine is just the medium for administering a sophisticated version of intoxication. It was not simply the product of the, the growth of, of yeasts and the sugars produce, produce ethanol. They drank their wine diluted with three or four parts of water, and yet it was extremely intoxicating. They didn't dilute it so they wouldn't get drunk, since the point of going to a drinking party was to get drunk. But in addition to diluting it with water, as they did the mixing ceremony, they also put other substances into it in order to commemorate if ethanol, which is the product of fermentation from the grapevine, which is a cultivated plant, 
In fact, the, the, the grape has to be pruned annually in order for it to fruit. And the, the fruits are not intoxicating. Uh, the leaves are not intoxicating, but you can manufacture upon the crushed grape juice ethanol. That is one half of the evolutionary process. The other half is the precedence to viticulture. And so they added to the wine things from the primordial past of intoxication. These would be wild vines, typically the wild cucumber and wild morning glory and ivy. And the tradition about these plants is that the leaves are intoxicating in their own right. You don't have to do anything to them, whereas grape leaves are edible. And that the berries are intoxicating. You don't have to grow something on them. They're, they're intoxicating. And the whole drink is symbolic of the reconciliation of our primitive antecedents as we evolve towards our civilized state. So the, the drink has a strong significance as emblematic of our evolving civilized culture. It manifested, for example, in the fact that the god presided over the inspiration that produced the plays put on in the theater of Dionysus, the tragedies and the comedies, the high culture. But that high culture it evolves from a reconciliation with the dark, deeper past roots of inspiration. And and we get back to what I was saying before about us as individuals. Those deep roots are deep within our psyche. And the, the benefit of taking that journey to confront yourself in the interior of yourself is that you return with the knowledge of a totality. This is the essence of becoming inspired as an artist. Could you talk a little bit about how we have come to believe that this particular set of additional intoxicants was added to wine and how we know about which ones they were? Well, there are two essential pieces of evidence. And one is that the god Dionysus was worshipped in two different ways. One was for men, although as time went on, the gender distinction was lost. And so men and women were doing the same sort of thing. In the classical period, the drinking party, which took place in the city, was for men. And the intoxicant was the ethanol in the wine drink, with other additives to it, as we know, because they got very drunk on very little amount of what they drank. The other was for the women, originally only for the women. They left the city, went to the wilderness. It's a symbolic act. And there we see them in various states of, of extreme ecstatic emotion in days paintings and, and, and descriptions in, in literature too. And what were they doing there? There's never any indication that they're drinking wine uh, it would be hard to carry the wine up to a mountain anyway. And the, the important thing is they went to not where civilization is and where plants are planted, but they went to the wilderness, the, the mountaintop. And the emblem of what they're doing is the thyrsus, which is the hollow uh, stalk of a reed like the fennel, giant fennel, into which uh, leaves are stuffed. And typically it's ivy leaves that are stuffed in it. Now they will discover that that was the symbolic emblem, the, the wand, if you wish, of the shaman, of people gathering magical plants. When you gather magical plants, there has to be special procedures for doing it in order to address the fact that the plant has an indwelling spirit. And these techniques are documented for the medieval period and persist in 
and the uh, outskirts of, of modern society where old herbal lore still thrives. But for the most part, we, we've lost all of, the, of this knowledge. You can't just pick the plant, you have to do it in a special way. And the thyrsus is the emblem of people who are doing that, the receptacle for the plant. Another name for the thyrsus is the narthex. Thyrsus is etymologically related to the word torso, torso of a body. And so it's emblematic of, of the body of the God that, that you're gathering. The word narthex has the obvious etymology that is the container, the sex for the narcotic box. And so this is the receptacle for what you're gathering. So it seems quite clear that what the Mayanads were doing, not that they necessarily were gathering plants, they weren't drinking ethanol, and they did get into a high state of ecstasy. But whatever they were doing, it was a mimesis of the gathering of the wild antecedents of the god, not the harvest of the grape from the vineyard in the fields below the mountain, but the wild things that might be found growing on the mountaintop. So the fact that the Mayanads were gathering plants is the essential thing that I want to stress. And the second thing is what exactly did they add? And just recently, not that recently, maybe five years ago, in the book Dionysus and Thrace, we used as the cover illustration a vase that comes from ancient Ainos and Thrace. It was a water jug, uh, and it, it was found in a cemetery. The fact that it was preserved place in the cemetery would mean that it had some religious significance and it probably wouldn't have survived intact if it hadn't been secluded in a grave. And what is interesting is that it shows the mixing of the wine. On one side of the, the vase, we see a couple of people adding vine plants to the vat of wine. On the other side, we see someone offering a mushroom to perhaps a priest as, as a possible additive to the wine. And there's no better symbolic additive to the cultivated ethanol drink, which is the product of a fungus called yeast, controls to produce, produce the, the, uh, the, the ethanol, which would be the ultimate civilized extent of the antithetical pairing that, that we're talking about, the, the, the cultivated item. The opposite of that would be the wild, uncontrollable fungus, not the yeast, but something like a mushroom, which has no seeds, and can't be planted, and is probably the prototypical or archetypal of all wild plants. And so with that vase, we were able to demonstrate that as a matter of fact, it was amongst the other things, uh, mushrooms, as we had suspected all along, were one of the additives to the wine. As to which mushroom, many people are very fond of psilocybin mushrooms, and I have no doubt that they would use whatever variable thing they were able to find. As one traces the folklore tradition, the description passes on through antiquity, on through the Middle Ages and, and, and the Renaissance, is that it should be that mushroom that you showed me at the, yeah, before we went on air, the Amnita muscaria, the fly agaric. It should be reddish-orange, like the sun, have white scabs on it. And this is, as most of our viewers are aware, is the one that is repeatedly depicted in depictions of, of fairy tales, folk tales. But it's the classic storybook mushroom that you see, as you say, in folklore and children's books and so forth. The, the issue of the mushrooms in images throughout history is fairly interesting to me in that 
sometimes it's very clear in a painting that this is indeed a mushroom, but then a lot of times I will see what's claimed to be evidence of a mushroom in an image of the gods or something else, and it's not always so clear. I find it interesting that even the search for evidence of mushrooms in these kind of rites is sometimes elusive. They pop up mysteriously. You're not always clear exactly what you're looking at. A mushroom, of course, is a very simple shape if you draw it as a profile, which means it can be confused with other objects, phalluses, for example. I wonder what your thoughts are on, over the years, trying to uncover and look at images, and on the one hand, know that you have a hypothesis, a theory about what this might be, but that also you could be led astray and that what looks like a mushroom might not always be one. Yes, I should mention that I often work with Mark Hoffman. I say that because if I don't mention his name, you can say you claim all the credit for everything. Don't we work together? We do indeed work together. We have been gathering instances of depictions of mushrooms or mushroom imagery in medieval and Renaissance art. And so we're well aware of the whole range of things that are proposed. And some of them we do not go along with. Many of our viewers probably have seen these and said, no, it's not very convincing. Also, sometimes it's merely the fold in a garment that someone says looks like a mushroom. But we insist that you have to be able to establish the context. You can't just look at the picture. And so uh, we try to focus only on the ones that we think are incontrovertible as depictions of the mushroom. There aren't that many. However, it gets a, a better indication when you follow one of the traditional aspects of the fly agaric, which is that the metabolite is a superior source of the intoxicant, persists in the traditions of Siberia, where the poor people drink the urine uh, from the people having a party. When the people go out to uh, urinate, they show up with a bowl to catch the urine. I have not ingested the Omnita muscaria myself, but I have talked to the head of the Boston Ecological Society, and he and his girlfriend did experiment. It's less repulsive if you drink your own urine. So people who do this tend to use their own urine. And they assured me that it was indeed another source, a superior source of the intoxication. So we've looked at, in addition to depictions of mushrooms, places where urine is playing a sacred rite. And one of the best examples is a painting by Titian, High Renaissance, about 1500, 1520, I think it is actually. And there you have the uh, Bacchanal of the Andrians. The tradition is that people of the island of Andros, a Greek island associated with the god Dionysus, once a year the god returns and they have a Bacchanal. And so tradition has depicted this. There is a little boy who is the god Dionysus, and he's peeing into a river. And the, uh, the women downstream are scooping up the river pee and drinking it as wine. And very clearly, it's a depiction of the interdimensional barrier because you have the Andrians who are dressed as people. And then you have bare-skinned creatures could only be encroaching from the realm of myth. You have satyrs and things like that. And they don't see each other. They're, they're living in two worlds occupying the same space. The only point of contact between the two is the saucer of wine that the woman holds up, and a creature from the other realm is looking at that also. So the contact between the two realms is the saucer of wine. It's a very sophisticated piece of work because the women on the, on the riverbank are uh, singing a song, 
and the, the script, the score for what they're singing is in front of them, facing them. So it'd be upside down for you as you, you view the, uh, the picture. And it's around, you know, row, row, row your boat. Voice after voice comes in and the words are, he who drinks it but once and doesn't drink it again doesn't know what true drinking is. Oh, interesting. They're drinking pee. <laughs> there may be other reasons why they're drinking. It may not be associated with the Amnita Vascaria, but it makes one wonder whether that is what's being depicted. And there are other works that we looked at where sacred urine is apparently something like a Holy Eucharist. It's interesting and challenging, too, to look back through the vast history and then try to pluck out the instances that seem to recommend this. It'd be much cleaner if there were something direct from that era of the mystery that said, this is exactly what we did, or some other kind of smoking gun. There have been very long projects to try to connect the fly agaric to a variety of different rituals. There was Watson's attempt to connect it with Soma, the food of the gods. Are you convinced by Wasson's argument that this is indeed the food of the gods mentioned, I think, in the Rig Veda? Is that how you say it? Yes, yeah, I am convinced. I became involved in this study because uh, Wasson invited me to work with him. Our original product was the, the Road to Eleusis, Unveiling the Secret of the Mysteries, for which we enlisted Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD, and we proposed that what the potion, we know at Eleusis, there was a sacred potion. We know the ingredients of it, but you can't expect that they're going to tell you exactly what the intoxicant is. But it, the ingredients were grain, barley groats, not cooked, just barley kernels in water, obviously just the medium, in a uh, herb called fleabane. Many people call it penny royal, but that's because penny is a corruption of the Latin pulegium, and pulegium means flea. And the fact that it's called royal, penny royal, apparently a continuation of the fact that this herb, which is actually an insecticide, has some kind of status to royalty, probably because it was involved in, in this mystery drink. The Flea bane could be thought to be the psychoactive agent, but it's not psychoactive. It is, however, an insecticide. It is a poison. And in the drink, its symbolism is that it is a wild, poisonous thing, whereas barley, like the grape, is a product of the evolution of agriculture. The cultivated grains were hybridized from earlier forms of grain, which produced fewer kernels. Going back to an original that had only one kernel or two kernels, what we call Indian corn is a further hybridization of the grains. You know from Indian corn, corn on the cob kind of corn, that if the cob falls to the ground, the kernels will, of course, sprout, but they'll be too close together and they won't grow into the big stalks to, to produce the cobs of corn. Once things become hybridized from, from the wild, they have to be protected, otherwise they'll go back to the wild. So if you let Indian corn sow itself in the same place over and over again, you can well imagine it's going to revert to more primitive grasses, perhaps archetypally going back to the, to the earliest with only a single kernel. So barley was emblematic of the evolution of cultivated grains. It, however, is the, and this is what, uh, where Albert Hoffman's input was important, it is often infected with a fungus, ergot. 
And ergot has a complex of toxins. Taking together, some of the toxins produce severe illness in people, resulting in death. Ergotism, St. Vitus, St. Anthony's Fire, St. Vitus Dance, a good long tradition of people intoxicated and, in fact, having fatal experiences. So ergot is dangerous. It was while investigating the toxins in ergot that uh, Hoffman synthesized LSD. LSD is not a natural chemical. It's synthesized. But there are chemicals in ergot that are very similar to LSD. One is LSA, lysergic acid amide, and LSH, which occurs on certain forms of ergot. These are equivalent to the same toxin that you can extract from uh, the morning glory seeds in the Mexican morning glory of a liquid. We focused on how you could extract from the ergot, the psychoactive agent. This sounds far-fetched. No, it doesn't really, but we're fortunate that recently, five years ago, I was contacted by a young scholar and we went to Spain together and interviewed a Catalonian Spanish archaeologist who had been excavating a site in eastern Spain and Catalonia. It was a Greek settlement, and she discovered that a room in the house was a sanctuary. And in the debris on the floor of this sanctuary, she found little cups. You would think that they were a child's doll tea set. They're small, very small. They would hold only a teaspoon of something or maybe a tablespoon, very, very small, but they're found in a sanctuary, and so they're not child's play toys. And they had a residue of what they once contained, and they contained an ergotized beer made from barley that had ergot growing on it. So very clearly, whatever was drunk, you needed only a very small portion, just a tablespoon, as everyone probably knows. LSD is an extremely powerful entheogen. A minuscule amount will induce the mystical experience. And we also know that the sanctuary was associated with the same deities, the goddess deities, which were worshipped at Eleusis. Eleusis was a sanctuary outside of Athens, to the west of Athens, about 14 miles. But you might well expect that if you were as far away as Spain, you might want to have a closer access to the deity. The archaeologist Enriqueta Pons also discovered that they use silos. Silos are underground chambers for storing the grain crop, but they gathered in the grain silos underground and had a religious experience. So that we have also an example of the same kind of experience you had at Eleusis. Eleusis was a magnificent uh, architectural building in the likeness of a cave, a cathedral in the shape of a cave, if, if you wish. And in this provincial town, the Greeks were, were doing a similar thing in an underground enclosure. The experience is well known to everyone from the allegory of Plato's cave. We are in a cave seeing reality, which we think is real because that's all we've ever seen. And we have to be liberated from the cave, burst from the cave. In terms of the Platonic allegory, you drag the prisoners up here and show them this world and say, you see, you thought that was real, but this is reality. And the person says, oh, yeah, oh, this is so much real. And then your teacher says, no, you fool. This is the cave. And this cave experience, uh, liberation from the cave, can be traced back to a probable use of caves in prehistory, probably going back to 
documentation of it as early as 35,000 before the common era, and probably before that, but we just don't have the evidence for it. It was probably, as we postulate, the primordial religious experience. And as you might expect, as time goes on, civilization progresses, it becomes more and more sophisticated. So it turns into the great cathedral of Eleusis, imitated by the underground grain silos in, in the provincial town. The scholar who brought my attention to this is Brian Morarescu, and he's just a month ago has published a book which many people are now reading, The Immortality Key. I want to loop back to a term that was part of the book that you wrote that I mentioned at the beginning and that you mentioned just now, entheogen. Where does that word come from and what does that mean? Yes, I was asked to make up a word after, after we published The Road to Eleusis. It was 1978-79 in the height of the psychedelic revolution. The word psychedelic had all kinds of connotations of people protesting the war in Vietnam and deviating from the traditions of the parents and, and so forth. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it had a whole cultural ambiance, which made it very difficult to speak of a religious sacrament, a Eucharist, as a hallucinogen, uh, or as psychedelic, because psychedelic implied that whole cultural movement. And so I came up with the term entheogen. Entheos is a Greek adjective. It, it occurs in Euripides' Bacchae to describe what these Bacchants, these female devotees of the god during their mountain revel experienced. They, they had the god, the Theos, within them. They became inspired with god, entheos. And I put it together with the gen root, which is Greek that you have in Genesis. and well known because of hallucinogen is something that will induce the experience of having the God dwell within you. So that term was coined in part, as you say, to avoid using a term that had a particular connotation. In general, I find that the subject itself of mushrooms, magic, mushrooms, psychedelics, entheogens, whatever word you want to use to it, is itself either stigmatized or ignored to some extent by normal, upright society. I wonder why you think it is and what it is like to have worked in a field that has that kind of aura about it for such a long time. It must have an effect to be in some ways on the margin, even though what you're doing is perfectly rigorous academic research. Yes, many people hate me because of it. And more and more I've come to call this antigen, this psychoactive potion, a Eucharist, because we strongly suspect that in elite cults uh, within the established church, the old ritual has persisted, as, as always, new religions assimilate their, their precedents. And the, the clearest example that such a thing is true comes not in a, a work of art, but in a historical record from Mount Athos. Mount Athos, as everyone probably knows, is a very exclusive monastic community, various monasteries on the, on the peninsula. They were accused within the Greek Orthodox Church of being heretical because they were interested in Eastern methods of meditation, mystical experience. So they definitely had a tradition of mystical uh, Christianity. 
And from Mount Athos, one of the monasteries, we have a letter from a priest. The situation is that we're at the point where the Roman Church and the Orthodox Church are trying to come back together again. And this priest says that the Greek Orthodox Church should not reunite with Rome. And the reason is that the God has shown special favor on Mount Athos. Probably know that uh, it was considered the garden of the Virgin Mary, that she supposedly set foot there. And uh, once that happened, it became her special place. So no other females has ever been allowed to step upon the, the peninsula, not even female uh, animals. And so a very special situation of God's grace, this, this uh, priest says, has been given to the monastic community. And as proof of it, he cites a miracle. And he says that the altar, the holy altar, turned into the holy mushroom. And everyone who came to of the altar was healed. That's clear literary evidence that an altar turned into what he calls a holy mushroom. Good evidence like that is hard to come by, but there it is. It's as remarkable as our discovery of that Greek vase with the mushrooms being added to the mixture of wine. So in a sense, maybe you are working in a field of forbidden knowledge. And, and, and people get very angry. The first reaction to my work has been to ignore it. If you ignore it, it'll go away. Rather than, as I expected at the beginning, I thought people would confront me and prove that I was wrong. But instead, they just turned their back and, and walked away and pretended I wasn't there. Eventually, I would, I would go away and they could forget, the, forget the whole thing. Brian's recent book has brought it all to the, the forefront again, has retraced my, my research. I looked at the same things I, I looked at and has come out more forcefully than I did originally, that there was because it's the biggest secret ever ever kept of the religion that has no name. There certainly seem to be a lot of links between different religions in their early stages and the use of mind-altering substances. It seems to be a fairly common theme, Renaud? Absolutely. Looking back now on many years working in this field and writing about it, what would you say, if anything, are the things that you think yourself or Wasson or uh, Hoffman got wrong in their understanding of the use of psychedelics throughout history? I don't know if I can say what they got wrong. Shortly after the publication of The Road to Eleusis, I was at a conference in Washington State with Richard Schultes, who's now deceased, but the director of the Harvard Botanical Museum and with Albert Hoffman and with Wasson, we were talking about the publication of The Road to Eleusis. And Schultes in the 1940s did a lot of research in Amazonia. Officially, he was looking for alternative sources of latex. During the war, it was hard to get latex from the East. And so he was looking for plants that could be used to produce rubber. And of course, if you're looking for plants, you go to the native people who know the plant lore. And so he did a lot of travel amongst the indigenous people in learning about their plant knowledge. The people who had the plant knowledge were the shamans. And so he was initiated into many, many psychoactive experiences with the various substances used in Amazonia. 
So someone who has so much experience with altered consciousness, someone in the audience said, you had all that experience, what does it mean? And he said, it means nothing, means absolutely nothing, means the next morning you wake up and you go to work. He was, of course, lying. Albert Hoffman, who was sitting next to him, then said, well, I think it makes me realize that the definition of reality is a bit more fuzzy, (laughs) which is where we began with our conversation. And I think that's a, a great way to bring it around full circle. Carl, thank you so much for coming on The Filter. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.